Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the PhD Talk podcast. Today, we continue the topic of writing for publication. And our topic of today will be where to publish an article. So two weeks ago, we listened to the story of Rico, who wrote his first uh, journal article as a first author. And today we want to provide some insights on those of us who may be just starting writing their first journal article and are at the point of deciding for which journal to write. So with that introduction said, the format that we'll use today is then uh, Rico will ask me about my experience with where to publish an article and we'll take it from there. Yes, thank you, Eva. Yeah, we decided to go with our format uh, simply because my publication experience is very limited and um, I figured, you know, better ask the expert here. So if we can just jump right into it, Eva, when you're selecting a journal in which to publish, what factors do you consider and how would you recommend people go about choosing a, a journal? Yeah, the first thing that I can say here is if you are a PhD candidate and you are co-authoring your first journal article together with your supervisor, then take advantage of the experience that your supervisor has and ask them for a recommendation on which uh, journal to target. Mm -hmm. If your supervisor bounces a question back to you and said, well, what do you suggest? Where do you want to send it to? Then the first thing that you can do is to look at the references of the work that you would be citing in this article that you would be working on, or look at the journals that you read and take those as a reference. Once you've identified a handful of journals that may be potential good venues for your work, don't just go to the website and download the template and start typing in there, but mm -hmm. also make sure that your work is within the scope of the journal. So every journal has its scope on their website. So you can check the scope of the journal and you can as well check the people who serve on the editorial board. I have a question there, Eva, actually. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the editorial board, what exactly are you looking for? You're looking for a journal that has experts in your field. So if there are familiar names that show up in the editorial board that are people who work on research that you're familiar with, that's typically a good sign. If mm -hmm. nobody on the editorial board is people that you know, then you may want to dig a little bit deeper and see what they actually work on. And if your work would really be in line with the people that serve on the journal's editorial board. And I'll also just add something here, just um, a thought that occurred to me. When I was first starting out and doing a lot of reading, uh, I kept a list of every author basically that that I read, uh, and that includes first, second, and third authors and uh, sort of like the general topics that I saw that they were working on. And just the fact of writing it down helped me like sort of remember the names as I, as I saw them more mm -hmm. and more. So that's good practice, I think, especially when you're starting out. And as a sort of additional comment to that, if it's... People whose work you know, then you can also rest assured that they will be able to send your work to reviewers who are suitable to 
review your work mm. because they they work in the same sphere of research. Even though we see more and more that journals have these AI assistants than just uh, crawl databases and then say these people would be good reviewers, but it's not the mm. same as sending, saying from my perspective of a, an editor at, at different journals, it's not the same as sending the review invitation to a colleague whom you know personally, whom you know you can trust their judgment as compared to something from an AI assistant. Yeah, it's sort of a black box like all AI is, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're not sure what, what the recommendation is based on. Yes. You mentioned at the start of your advice that ask your supervisor, and that's exactly what I did uh, for, for the, the paper that we published. We decided to go with the ASE Bridge Journal. And the reasoning there was that we had bridges in mind when we were designing the test series. For us, it was something simple like that. Mm-hmm. And I think in addition to asking your supervisor, you can also ask potentially uh, other PhD students in your research group, postdocs, colleagues to see what their experience with certain journals is in terms of how they, how fast or slow they are in getting back the reviews, how they experience the whole process to, to have a little bit of uh, more feeling for for how pleasant or unpleasant it may be to work with a certain journal. Yeah, because that stuff often isn't online. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll ask you here something I noticed you didn't mention so much when you're trying to select a journal, but how much do you consider impact factor and those kind of metrics in the decision? I think I could fill an entire episode about that. (laughs) And when it comes down to impact factor, it's important to know that It's a metric that looks at the overall citations of a journal. And originally, the impact factor was developed to help librarians see which journals they should subscribe to for their library. It was never intended to be a metric of quality or of how well cited your article will be because it's an averaging of citations of a journal and it doesn't say anything about the individual article in the journal or the individual author Mm -hmm. now with that said we do see that journals that have been around for a longer time that have more established procedures they typically are the ones that have in the first place an impact factor because they are indexed in isi thomson reuters list A newer journal that may still be floating around trying to get all its editorial policies in place will not have reached that step yet. So from that perspective, you know it's a a journal that has gone through all the quality requirements to be indexed in the Web of Science catalogus. But to say that it's a... And this is, of course, something that people discuss a lot because more and more we see that universities focus on quartile one and two publications that sometimes they give bonuses related to where you publish, etc. And I think it's skewing away from the actual impact that an article can have in terms of who is going to cite it. And beyond that, for our field, I think something has more impact if your work lies at the basis of, say, code provisions rather than when it's cited a lot, but nobody does anything with it, but we don't have a metric, at least for construction and civil engineering to really value that. So there's a lot that can be said about the impact factor and I'll get off my soapbox for now. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we could dedicate a whole episode to that. And in our field of structural engineering, I've 
I've done work that is more in the direction of materials, um, concrete materials, fatigue, steel, fiber, reinforced concrete. And that type of work and the journals that you sent this work to tend to be just higher impact factors than, say, mm -hmm. a really structural engineering or concrete structures related journal. Does that mean then my structural engineering work is less than mm. things related to materials. No, it's just different topic. Yeah, I guess it's more, it's also more, um, it's a more elementary level of science, mm -hmm. I guess, in that way. You see this a lot in medicine as well, then there's this hierarchy almost for medical researchers and the ones that are really at the almost molecular level, their work gets cited down the entire stream to application, but all the way inverse, the ones that are at the clinical application part, their work will often not be cited by those who are really at the, and probably I'm, I'm saying this wrong here, in, in, but in terms of trying to explain the general picture, I, I hope I'm, yeah. I didn't get the, the entire field of medicine wrong here, but that's what I understood then. The ones that really are at the very small level get cited all the way down the stream, but the, the ones that really work more on clinical applications, not. And that skews how funding is allocated and that skews a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah. So I guess that's something else to consider. I think we, we've sort of made the case that maybe that impact factor isn't so uh, relevant and it's not the only thing you should be concerned about. In the vein of selecting a journal in which to publish, I wonder when you're starting a new topic, let's say an early stage researcher or a PhD student who's working on a project that's tangential to his research or her research, uh, how would you go about finding a journal in a field that you're maybe not so familiar with? A tool that I've used in the past is one of these journal finder tools, and there's one of Elsevier, there's one, I think the publisher Springer also has one, and then there is Jane, and I forgot what Jane is an abbreviation for, but it's essentially <laughs> as well a journal finder. And how these journal finders work is quite simple. You typically paste the title or intended title and intended abstract, and it will use AI to match your topics and your research to potential uh, good journals for that. And of course, you always have to take these with a grain of salt, because if you work, for example, on fatigue in anything that is uh, yes. structural engineering, you will also get recommendations for journals that look at fatigue studies in industrial engineering or that work yes. on fatigue related to work-life balance. So always take these yeah. with a grain of salt and, and don't just uh, uh, go with what the journal finder recommends. Sure, yeah. Or stress and strain in an engineering exactly. context is very different from in a psycho psychological or medical context. Yeah. And actually, mm -hmm. I looked it up. The, the Jane uh, stands for journal slash author name estimator. So ha, there you go. Look at that. <laughs> That's, uh, that pretty much says it right there. In addition to, you know, once you've found, let's say, a list of journals that you would consider publishing in, what could you look at in terms of specific criteria? The first one to look at is indexation. And we touched upon this briefly already with saying that something that has an impact factor means that it's indexed in Web of Science. So some a journal that is indexed in Scopus or Web of Science has already gone through many years of applications to get to that point and a lot of indicators of quality to get to that point. Other types of indicators or indexations, I should say, that you want to look at are, for example, when you're looking at an open access journal, the DOAG, the Directory of Open Access Journals, 
And then there is a number of directories that really are related to open science and, and open access publishing, such as, for example, Amelica, which is really more for open access publishing. And they are a product of or associated with Redalic, which is the network of Ibero-American publishing houses and journals. So that really targets Latin America as well as the Iberic Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal. So it, it really looks at that part. And Amelica itself, it's very similar to the Sherpa Romeo part, with, which really looks at within open access, you have different types of open access, as we talked about as well in the uh, interview about open access publishing, because mm -hmm. in some cases of open access, you have to pay for open access. In some cases, you hold the copyright. In some cases, it goes to the publisher. So there is a, not all open access is made equal. And these indexes, Amelica, Sherpa Romeo, those really look at how open is your open access publishing and are you diamond open access where the author retains copyright and where it's free to publish and, and, and free uh, to read, which is like the highest standard of open access publishing sure, sure. as compared to something where you would have to pay an open article processing charge to publish your article and or where you have to transmit your copyright to the publishing house. So for if you're concerned about open access, these uh, these indexes like Amelica would help you make a decision like, you know, how open access are you yes. willing to go? Okay. And and some of these, especially for smaller journals, um, for example, Amelica gives tools to smaller publishers and smaller journals to, for example, turn their content into the uh, XML format. So most journals have the PDF and the HTML and the XML format, sure. but turning something into an XML is actually quite complex. So Amelica is one of these, the services that they give smaller publishing houses is really a generator for this type of formats. So it helps small publishing houses to, to be able to offer open access publications as well. And they do a lot of training to editors as well. And I wonder here, maybe this is not the right part to ask this question, but is there any consideration, let's say, where you would decide on a journal that you're your first choice journal, and then you say, okay, well, if this gets completely rejected from that journal, then you would have like a ranking, let's say, where you would have, okay, well, now we'll submit it to a secondary journal. Is that a, a thought process that you go through or that you have gone through? It's a thought process that I've gone through after receiving a rejection, uh, sure. but usually I when I submit it to the first journal, then I don't have my plan B and C there yet. I just yeah. go with it as the rejections come in. Okay. And so uh, aside from what we just mentioned, uh, is there any other sort of metrics maybe or uh, things to consider when selecting a journal? There are some other stats that you may want to look at when you submit or when you're exploring journals. And one of them is the stats in terms of how much time do they take to make a first decision? Uh, how much time do they take on average to get the reviewer comments back to you? Um, and what is the rejection or acceptance rate to have an idea what your chances are? Yeah. So if you have research that is time sensitive, you may want to look for a journal that has a bit bit of a faster turnaround in terms of editorial decisions and getting reviewer comments. On the other hand, if you have 
a journal of preference that you know that all your colleagues receive in print and will read, such as for me, one of them is the ACI Structural Journal that I know that a lot of people still get in the mail and flip through. (laughs) It does take a fair amount of time to get reviews back and get decisions back and to get the print proofs and then finally get it published. Mm -hmm. But if it's not something that is super timely or super urgent, then what I value is the fact that I will know that some colleagues will get it in the mail and flip through it and then mm-hmm. potentially send me an email saying, hey, I saw your paper with the experiments. Nice, interesting, or maybe not yeah. interesting. They typically don't <laughs> say anything <laughs> um, as compared to looking for a faster publication track. So yeah, print versus just uh, just online. Mm-hmm. And um where would you find that sort of information? Is that something that the, the, the article or the journal, I should say, will publish? Most journals do publish their stats. So they typically publish the time to first decision, which typically is mm-hmm. either a desk reject or a, a sending it off to, to review. And the time in review they tend to publish, percentage of accepted articles they typically publish. So you typically find that on a page that says statistics or something along those lines. So yeah, go do do your research on the on the journals. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, like I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of the work you tend to read comes from, you know, three, four, five journals, right? Like once you've done your literature review or you've done some reading in the topic, you're you're familiar with which journals you're you're going to be looking at in general. You know, at least in in the broad strokes, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing to add in here uh, for those who have requirements for their PhD to graduate on a PhD by publication format, you may want to not go for a journal that takes uh, three three years to to get your paper out. And you may, in that case, (laughs) also need to look at your graduation timeline and potentially go with something that has faster turnarounds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's something to consider, you know, even if it's not a graduation requirement, like even just to be able to, um, like, you know, for thinking about after the PhD, it's something you want to put on your CV, you know, so uh, that's something to consider for sure. Mm-hmm. How about uh, now that we've sort of figured out how we're going to look for which journal to publish in, uh, do you have any tips like for somebody at this stage in their in the publication process? What are your best tips for them? The first one is to really read carefully through the website of the journal to see what all the author requirements are for the publication to make sure that if there's a template that you use the template. And especially if you are resubmitting something that was rejected by another journal, don't just grab the file of the rejected paper, but make sure that you put everything in the right format and with the right things for the journal that you will resubmit it to. Now, what we see more and more is that some journals have the, what is called your paper, your way formats. And we see that more on the Elsevier journals. And it essentially means you can submit your paper in whichever format you want. And the idea is that at the end of the day, the typesetters will put it in the right layout anyway. So it doesn't really matter whether it's Times New Roman 12 point or if it's uh, Arial 12 point or any other of those because the typesetters at the end of the day will take care of it. Most of the templates that we have are organized in such a way that the file is friendly for reviewers. And things that we had in the past, like a two-line spacing between lines, 
that would allow reviewers to write their comments in between the lines. That's just not so important anymore in the year 2021, where your reviewers most likely will review the file digitally. Yeah, yeah. And also I would add here, like do a run through of the uh, of the portal, because sometimes, you know, it's difficult to find this information on the website. But if you run through the portal, you'll see exactly what you need to to consider. And it, it's better to do that at the start of the process, as opposed to, you know, when the paper is all written, and you're like ready to submit, and then it turns out, well, wait a second, there's some piece that you're missing, let's say. Yes. And some elements that can be important there is be really mindful of the word count limits. So if yeah. a journal has strong word count limits, make sure that you understand the limits correctly and see how they see tables and figures as certain word equivalents. Don't just look at the word count that Microsoft Word shows at the bottom of the file. Really look at sure. the requirements in terms of words associated with tables and figures, because the idea of these word count limits is that your paper should be a maximum certain pages when it goes in press. And this is typically more of an issue for journals that are print journals because they have page budgets. So the number of articles that they can publish and the number of pages that they can publish tends to be agreed upon with the publishing house in terms of page budgets. So that's sometimes a, a big issue for some journals. Yeah. And along the same lines of then, make sure your reference formatting is correct. It's very easy to use any type of reference management software. But once you generate your list of references, do go through it to check if things show up correctly and don't submit it just the way that the reference manager spits out the list of references without cleaning up things here and there. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And another one here is as well anything that is related to, and this is for some fields more important than ours, but writing things in italic when necessary. So when it's chemical formulas, formatting mm. of that, uh, in biology, the taxonomy of names that can be really important. Those are not things that I'm too familiar with, but since I'm the editor-in-chief of a multidisciplinary journal, that is something that I see that down the line of the production process at times does cause some headaches for the typesetters and, and for yeah. uh, people at the very last part of it. Yeah, and I'll add something just in the vein of formatting and also in the vein of publishing to print versus publishing online. It's often an extra fee if you want to publish in color. So make sure your figures work in black and white or in grayscale as well. And that's something we ran into. You know, I was I was using all kinds of colorful uh, graphs and stuff and be, be aware that that might not always show up or you might not want to pay the extra fee. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's something that I do remember as well from when I was a PhD student that I knew that at that time, printing in color was still fairly expensive. So for my PhD sure. thesis, I really looked into the number of photographs that would have to really be in color. And I think at the end of the day, I managed to put everything in black and white to save costs on the, the printing of my thesis. Uh, but it's it's yeah. something that I, I had to be really mindful of then. Yeah. And, and also it's a matter of like, I print out my the journal articles that I'm going to read, um, but I print it out in grayscale. So even if on my screen it's in color, like when I print it out, it's going to be in grayscale. So if you want to be friendly to your readers that are going to use that um, method to read your journal article. Absolutely. And I think in terms of formatting, another one that may be important is check the units that the journal requires. There's still a fair yeah. number of journals that are based in the United States that require dual units. So if you <laughs> write 
and you think in SI units, it may be that the journal also wants you to yeah. put the imperial units between brackets or the other way around. So that's a, that's one thing to make sure you don't miss it. And I think for those of us who are internationals, hmm. also check whether they use decimal point or decimal comma, because that may be a very confusing one as well. If you are in a language that uses the decimal comma instead of the decimal point, but the journal wants to use it as a decimal point. I was going to add two more things. And one of them yeah, is to check the word count limits on the abstract, because that varies widely between abstracts of 300 words versus some journals wanting shorter abstracts of between 100 and 150 words. So that's one to always check. Make sure that your keywords don't repeat words that are used in the title. And that's really for search engine optimization that we have that requirement that more people can find your article. Ooh, that's a good tip. If you repeat the same words as in the title, then well, your keywords are not going to function as such. And the last one that I was going to say is check the different sections that a journal wants. Some journals have extra requirements such mm. as a list of highlights. So you may have a list of five to seven highlights from your research that are really short, your main findings. And some journals require research significance where they really want you to put a short blurb of saying why your work matters and what you did that is special and that requires publication or that merits publication. So if you just mm -hmm. write your article, introduction, literature review, methods and materials, results, discussion, and conclusions, you may miss those sections. And the other sections that typically people yep. sometimes miss are the author contributions. And we talked about credit taxonomy in the past, which is something that you can use there. And the other section that people sometimes miss is, for example, the conflicts of interest, all of those parts, just make sure you have them in there. And if you have a journal that has a template, then those things typically are in the template to help you remind to put them in there. Yeah, the other one is data availability statements, and, and there's all sorts of these little things. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. This was episode 36 of the PG Talk podcast in which we discussed where to publish an article. I gave my best advice on how to select an article and discussed this with Rico um, based on his experience from the journal article he recently submitted. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast and we'll be back next week with more on Research Life and Research Mechanics. Thank you very much for listening.